Dr. Garrett Ryan, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, you host Told in Stone, a YouTube channel that's probably, I, I mean, at least lately, my favorite history channel to watch. And I, I'm just as interested in history as I am science. So it was sort of an interesting an interesting break from my, my rather weighty shows lately, <laughs> AI and things like that, to just, just sit and talk about history. And what I want to get into is how history seems to repeat itself. And I guess that's sort of a false statement because sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But in your view, what is going on today that has happened before or something analogous to it has happened before? Mm -hmm. Well, I used to tell my students on the first day of my courses in ancient history that if we learn one thing from history, it's that we learn nothing from history. Speaking generally as a species, I guess. So, so right, obviously, you know, we're, we're the same animal, you know, down through recorded history. We have the same kind of impulses, tend to handle crises in the same kind of a ham-fisted way, that, that sort of thing. But it's also true, of course, as you said, that, you know, history does not repeat itself, and that every era has its own rules and parameters. Our current post-information technology age, for example, is qualitatively different in many ways from anything before. And that, of course, you know, is fascinating for me as a historian, how I, you know, how I'm going to come to grips with it sometimes. As for parallels I see, obviously, I try not to, on my channel, I always fend off questions like, you know, is America Rome, that kind of grand scale, not terribly historically attuned comparisons. You know, in an era like ours, where an, an age of anxiety, so to speak, um, where things like inflation, things like COVID are making people anxious in all kinds of ways, I just reflexively almost look back to the later Roman Empire and try to, again, not see for solutions or anything, but kind of see how people, authors, you know, responded to similar crises in the 5th century especially. So, like our, late, our latest Roman writers from Augusta and onward. And again, there's not much solace there necessarily, but it's interesting to see the same sort of human drama on a vastly different stage. That's always been something that's fascinated me is that you can go back and read these ancient authors, and I will cite Marcus Aurelius here, mm -hmm. and you can look at that sort of Stoic philosophy that he, he liked and still to this day apply it to human affairs. It's mm -hmm. still relevant. And even things like the Georgics, mm -hmm. even much older, where right. you know, it's, it, it still holds true today. And that amazes me, but it also points squarely to the fact of what you said. We are still human, and so were they. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is, that is the argument for the classics, right? That, you know, these things are produced by society that is profoundly different from ours in all sorts of ways, even though it informs ours, of course, or we think it does. But that something in these works, you know, from the Iliad, you know, on through the meditations is relevant still, you know, profoundly relevant to who we are as human beings and how we interact with each other in a society you know, obviously, those lessons can't be applied just directly, but we can find them if we look for them. And that's you know, the real joy of teaching the classics, that you, you, you have these things, these you have a work that's 2,000 years old that still feels fresh or can be made to seem fresh if you teach it the right way. And translate it the right way. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> you know. Now, what, uh, what's your view on updating the language of classics mm -hmm. and to make them more understandable to a general audience today? In other words, do you think we should sort of stick to the, the it's, it's sort of like the same problem with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You know, do you think that we should stick to that version of English? And in this case, Greek or, or Latin, or do you think we should just update it to make the story clearer mm -hmm. to a modern audience? 
Well, I'm ambivalent, probably like most people, about that sort of thing. So, well, like with Shakespeare, right, it's our own language. And, you know, the, the puns, for example, are really hard to get sometimes, but it's still more or less intelligible. So, you know, we can kind of keep it as it is, unsubtitled. But, right, so Latin or Greek, unless you have, you know, the training in those languages, you need a translation. The default mode for translators, or was until recently, to be kind of antiquated, to be very formal in your language. Because, yeah, often these languages are highly formal, stylistically. So you try to mirror that in you know the way you translate. But I do think that, in general, I, I'm for making things as contemporary as possible. So for Homer, for example, the works of Homer, Robert Fagel's translations, which are come from the 90s, are idiomatic without being slangy or anything, just do a fantastic job. But in the same time, I still like Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad, which is, you know, in these very formal pentameter. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, the Republic couplets kind of convey Homer's rhythm, I think. So I guess there's room for both kinds of translations, ones that convey the tone in that, for, in that very formal sense, and those that convey the substance, the pith of the, of the uh, author. Now, with regards to ancient texts, there's some interesting possibilities in things like carbonized scrolls at Pompeii that we have yet to really dig into. And we now have a, a way to, I, I think, x-ray them and, and start deciphering them. Do you think that it is possible that we could recover a lot of the lost literature of the ancient world with uh, the archaeology that's going on today? Well, that's the great hope. The Herculaneum scrolls are the most tantalizing of all, of course, because we have thousands of these things, and they're just sitting there, tightly rolled, carbonized, waiting, it seems, to be pieced together. But one of my advisors in grad school actually worked on these things, and he told me how incredibly difficult it is to decipher even the outer leaves of you know, some of these scrolls. And when they did start to decipher them, they discovered that the library we have from Herculaneum is almost all the working library of a single person, a philosopher named Philodemus, who wrote some things that aren't great classics necessarily. They're interesting, but they're not Homer. And so we're always hoping for another, another library. And there actually may be a second, larger library in that same villa that's still buried. And if that is ever excavated, it's not been for some reason. There's rumors that the mob is involved somehow, and that's preventing you know, from digging further into that villa. We may yet discover some wonderful things, carbonized. If we do, of course, it'll be a huge task to gradually unroll them, either virtually through this x-ray scanning or the old-fashioned way through like a spring-loaded machine, probably the, the former, or one hopes. And of course, there's papyri from Egypt. I have another friend who's a papyrologist, and they still find occasionally in like a mummy casings, for example, whole sheets of unknown authors. The great poetess Sappho, for example, most of her works come from papyri in the last hundred years. So I don't think there's going to be a new renaissance of text anytime soon, but there certainly are authors and texts that we have not discovered that will be discovered in the next few decades. We just have to hope that there's enough funding in classics departments to keep that sort of work going and enough interest in the public to force their hand. Well, it just seems to me like the ultimate time capsules, because you're not just looking at an object, you're looking mm -hmm. at information left to us from, you know, what was that, 79 AD? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's just mind-boggling that that can telescope through time to get to us mm -hmm. and be preserved and possibly read without the, without the need of, of things like monasteries <laughs> copying, yeah, selectively right. copying, you know, some classics, mm -hmm. but not others. Now, I wanted to ask you about something a little bit more speculative. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when we look at the ancient world, we sometimes find surprising things like the Antikythera mechanism, right. where we have this object that's almost anachronistic. Mm-hmm. It almost shouldn't be there, but it, it, it was. Now, we've figured out what it does and, and why it existed, but it's it hints that the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, could have went much further than it did if it had taken certain paths. And I sometimes liken this to the mm-hmm. uh, Heron of Alexandria steam engine. If that would have been applied to work, right. then you could have had an industrial revolution 1,500 years before the actual one occurred, and possibly the Romans could have been on the moon if they would have applied mm-hmm. certain things. What do you think was different about specifically the Roman world that kept them from applying mm-hmm. these sort of technologies that were being invented. Yeah, it's one of those great false starts in history where the Romans have this large, economically integrated, stable empire with mass production of things like pottery, for example, with a remarkable amount of technological know-how that's exhibited in things like the Antikythera Mechanism and Huron's Yellow File. But at the same time, there are these factors that limit the degree to which both innovations like the Antikythera mechanism and the larger potential of that economy. And that comes down to the fact that the Roman Empire is run by pretty much very wealthy men who own large estates and care about innovation to the extent that it makes those estates work better, but not for any other reason. There's no such thing as R&D for its own sake. There have been times, most famously in the library of Ptolemy Alexandria, when there was royal patronage for certain kinds of research, uh, mostly literary, frankly, but there was funding for things like that. But in the Roman world, it really is a very conservative culture. The idea is that if you put money in education, and they do in some to some degree, there are endowed chairs for rhetoric, for example, you put it into the, the classical bases of culture, kind of like pre-19th century education in Britain, for example, where all they're reading and all they're replicating is the classics. There's no interest in technological education. And so, in this society, with its conservative bent and its big farmers running things, there's not much room for investment in kind of uh, research that would drive technology. The British Industrial Revolution, the one that worked, was driven only by the cotton textile industry. There's this this industry that's a global market for cheap cotton textiles um, and has enormous potential for entrepreneurs to make huge amounts of money. Um, with fairly cheap investment in things like steam engines. Um, So there's this gaping opportunity. Um, There's a lot of money floating around. And there's an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial class um, poised to take advantage of that opportunity. In the Roman world, there's no industry catalyzing this development. You know, there are innovators like Hero of Alexandria who have obviously the skills to make machines. You know, the Aeolopile Huron steam engine is not very efficient in itself, but it's the principles are all there um, for a practical steam engine. He could have done it if he'd wanted to, but he didn't want to because there was no need for it. Um, there was no demand for it. You know, there are applications certainly um, for things like it. You know, the, the, the English famously, the first steam engines are pumping out mines, you know, in places like the Midlands and Wales. Um, and the Romans had their own deep mines in Spain. They could have pumped out with steam engines. Um, but they never made that particular leap because there wasn't this culture of innovation. There wasn't this, uh, drive to incentivize um, any anything like it. And so I think it was never likely that the Romans were going to make the leap to a industrial revolution just because um, the people running the society, the whole bent of the culture 
um, was towards stasis, basically, towards keeping things um, in the status quo, keeping things stable, and not in funding these madcap ventures. And when there was no obvious goal for those ventures. That's interesting because we might actually have an example that backs that up. If you look at the fall, the end, or the actually the, the dissipation mm-hmm. <laughs> of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, right. It continues on in some form in that you've got these these Visigoths and these all these groups still putting a picture of an emperor on their coinage for at least 100 years into the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, you know Charlemagne comes along, and you, which was eight hundred A.D., and he looks like a Roman emperor on his coins. So you, it seems like there's this yearning to get back mm-hmm. to that status quo. Where else do you see that in in that period? Well, I mean, really, the, the whole political culture of the Middle Ages is made in the shadow of Rome, and is hearkening back to Rome. So that's the great exemplar. You know, that's the empire that worked. The, the incredible stability of the empire until the very end stuck in people's minds, you know, created the model for any king who wanted to be more than just, you know, a local chieftain. And so everything from coinage, like you mentioned, you know, to styles of rule, to the Latin language itself, become canonical in Western Europe. You know, it's how you do power. You look to Rome and replicate Rome, what Rome did. You know, of course, most famously in literary culture, Latin remains the language of educated discourse until the early modern period and beyond in some cases. It has enormous staying power. Just the inertia, I guess, of imperial power. And so, yeah, Rome was the empire that did everything right. And of course, in the East, it survives much longer as Byzantium. And there also is, is similarly influential. The Arabs model their early coinage on the Eastern Roman Empire. Em, empire. So, it's the model to follow. It's just the obvious template for ruling and governing. That's actually a very interesting area of, of uh, numismatics that's not well known as the Arab-Byzantine coinage, where you have Islamic mm-hmm. writing sometimes, and it's sort of a very crude way of copying the Byzantine coins, but it seems to show the caliph, or whoever the leader was, as a Byzantine emperor, which you, you wouldn't expect, especially from a culture that doesn't really like graven images very much. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating, you know, or how the the dinar is just denarius, right? You know, just this this incredible staying power of the Roman model in places you wouldn't really expect it. It's true. And also weight standards, even all kinds of things, metal purity and all that carried on to Islamic cultures as much as it did the Byzantines inheriting their Roman. uh, Well, they called themselves the Romans. They didn't really see a difference, but (laughs) (laughs) right. But they continued those traditions on. Well, even to the point where I think all through, I guess, the sixth century, the the coinage minted in Constantinople was still in Latin. Those big phallus type coins were all still in Latin, and and I think that was still the the government language, even though everybody spoke Greek, right, right, coiny Greek. And it's interesting how they they just hold on. But if you go into certain Orthodox churches in Greece, even to this day, there's still a seat for the emperor. <laughs> hey, isn't that isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful, and even after all this time, I mean, the last Byzantium ended in 1453, but it's still the tradition is there. Yeah, yeah, I just see that the memory of empire, the memory of empire is in some ways more powerful than the empire itself. I mean, it lasts longer, certainly, at least in the case of Western Rome. Just again, that, that, you know, Rome's great legacy, and in some ways most dangerous legacy, is the very idea of empire. That's this kind of universal hegemony over peoples and places that's founded in a certain ruling culture. And it's this, you know, very appealing model, and again, kind of a very dangerous model in the wrong hands. 
that's, you know, replicated again and again. We see, of course, imperial titles, you know, Kaiser, Tsar, you name it. And again, and things from coinage to linguistics. And then there's always Napoleon where you can, <laughs> right. you can go to, you can still see the echoes of empire in Paris if you visit Les Invalides and see his gigantic tomb, you know. But this seems to have, have gone away with one exception. Japan, of course, still has a titular emperor. But this whole imperial thing is gone in the modern age. I mean, there are echoes of it, but it doesn't appear that we will ever return to any sort of a model like that. So the the once moderately common title of emperor is or empress is done. Just that model is no longer relevant to our history. So this is a case where it hasn't changed. Or do you think if the wrong things happen, we could end up with it again? <laughs> well, I think we're beyond that. I think the 20th century kind of poisoned the title of empire and empires pretty pretty thoroughly, at least in the Western world. But certainly the idea of a hegemonic culture, you know, that, you know, one culture, one state can exert influence over the whole world in this kind of vaguely Roman sense, you know, that's never, that never really has gone away, I don't think. You know, of course, the U.S. was accused of this sort of imperialism, you know, during the Iraq War, that sort of thing. There's certainly this, this, uh, I don't know, a language of power that Rome is bequeathed to the world that, you know, we see on, on coins, for example, the American Quarter with its Roman eagle on the reverse. So, in little ways, at least, I think that that, that that's going to stay with us for a long time. The memory of empire, at least. Yeah, there's a, there's definitely Roman symbols on on U.S. coinage and politics. You, you go into the Senate, you see a Fasces. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and that's a symbol of a Senate going back to Rome. But it, uh, it's interesting to compare it because we do keep bits and pieces of our history with us to this day. And other parts we discard. Bad ideas are bad ideas. And we move on. And I'm sure we have plenty of bad ideas that... People will leave in the dustbin in the future. <laughs> here's hoping. Yeah, here's hoping. But getting to coinage, which is a shared interest of ours. Now, that's one thing we still have. We still have coinage and we still value the same metals that they did. They didn't know about all of the metals that we have, have discovered today, but they knew about gold and silver and copper, bronze. Do you think that because we've had money in this in, in the form of coins since the Greeks, 2,500 years, roughly. Do you think that's something that is always going to be here? Or do you think it's evolved to the point where a Roman, if we were to bring them today and they looked at a quarter, they would say, that's not money. That's, that's, that's just metal. It's not worth its salt. You know, uh, do you think that that's, uh, that can be said that, that once you hit money, you, you, you have some form of it forever. I think so. I think the idea of money is so powerful. I guess that's one of those good ideas that's stuck. I mean, a good idea, but an idea that works for better or worse. Yeah, I think we're kind of poised right now between this very ancient model of money that's based, you know, at least in theory, you know, things that look like noble metals anyway, in the case of our, you know, our, our quarters and nickels, whatever. Though paper money, of course, has no in, intrinsic value. You know, this very ancient model based on the, you know, coming from the Romans and Greeks, and this new fully digital model kind of epitomized by things like uh, Bitcoin or whatever else, e-currencies. That we honestly could switch to, and in most cases have in practical terms, you know, all of our money for most people kind of exists as a, a number on a digital ledger somewhere. But the, the sheer staying power of money as a physical token, you know, it's kind of hard to let that go. And even something like a credit card, which is kind of, you know, a money, uh, a money epitomized, you know, even that we don't need a physical card anymore, but we like to keep it around because it has, you know, the feel almost of money. So I think there's almost a psychological appeal to money you can feel and touch, even if it's just a paper bill that you don't get from cryptocurrency token or something. So again, I don't know where it's going to go. I probably will move towards a fully digital currency, you know, in, in our lifetimes. 
but uh, there, there is this incredible staying power of money that's you know based in this very the physical feel I think of a coin and a bill. Yeah, I wonder if that'll shift just simply to bullion. You know, where people will be like, you know, <laughs> they right, say, yeah, maybe it's it, it may not have an official stamp or tender on it, which at the American ounce does, and a lot of them actually do have official denominations. So maybe that's where people will more indulge in the desire to actually hold physical money. Or maybe, I mean, you know, when you base something on nothing, it can collapse. <laughs> so maybe the, <laughs> well, yeah. the return of the denarius and the aureus and all that <laughs> is in yeah, the right. future. <laughs> well, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? That, that there's this idea that, you know, the gold and silver have this intrinsic value because, you know, they're shiny and they're heavy and there isn't too much of them. And I guess there's something to be said for that, that there is a scarce commodity and therefore is intrinsically valuable if it's regarded as such. But of course, it's just, you know, it's pretty much an, a, a generally agreed upon fiction that we all you know have held to for so long that gold and silver are worth something beyond just being good superconductors or something like that. Right? The Romans and Greece, of course, had the same problem. The Romans did, where they th- there wasn't such a thing as fiat currency for them, where parts of the empire, like in, uh, in Roman Egypt, for example, they had these very debased tetradrachms that circulated there pretty freely because the Roman Empire backed it, and it, that was enough for it to keep its value. But in most cases, the, right, the denarius and aureus are valuable because they're gold and silver. And the moment the empire starts playing with that for various reasons, you know, everything goes to hell because people don't trust it anymore. And even now, we have this idea that gold and silver have this intrinsic value or will continue to have this value, which is why gold, you know, is now, what, you know, five or six times more expensive than it used to be 20 years ago. Because so many crises have happened, people have flood, fled to gold and still flee to gold because it seems like it should be valuable. And that impression, you know, creates, of course, the value it's supposed to generate. So yeah, it's a kind of an interesting, psych- kind of a crowd psychology thing and how gold and silver hold their value despite no longer being an element of currency in most countries. Well, and there's something I think a lot of people appreciate the idea of portable wealth mm-hmm. and the idea that you can melt gold, but you can't destroy it. Right. So you, you know, you've always got something if, if it's nothing more than a, you know, molten lump, it's still gold, you know. Now, do you think going back to the ancient world, one thing that's always fascinated me is the possibility, you know, again, like the, the papyri, the idea of the anoxic layer of the Black Sea and things like the Antikythera mechanism, where we might have a number of objects like that sitting down there perfectly preserved because this anoxic layer protects even the wood from shipwrecks. It's not just a pile of amphoras, it's, it's, it's the actual boat. Right, right. And we haven't really even touched it uh, as to what could be down there, but the possibilities are almost endless. There could be conceivably a Roman war galley down there because of the, the colony at Crimea. So it's like perhaps even better than Tutankhamun's tomb when Howard Carter is sitting there in our time right at the bottom of the Black Sea. What do you expect from that? I mean, it's an, a fascinating possibility that, right, you said that sea preserves whatever sinks below a certain level. And in fact, it's more likely than not that there are Roman ships down there. It's more just a matter of whether any given university or country will muster the funds to raise said ship, or at least investigate it thoroughly. There's There are so many treasures, both real and scholarly, waiting, I think, still with the Romans, even in this our, our mapped and fully explored world. Every year, some detectorist, you know, the fields of Yorkshire or whatever turns up, you know, some crazy Roman doodad we never expect. Pompeii is still only three quarters excavated. Herculaneum is still only one third excavated. There are hundreds more villas and little towns around Pompeii, around Vesuvius that were buried and they're still never, never been touched. 
every major Roman center still has left these legacies buried underground that have not been found. And so I think the Black Sea kind of epitomizes this fact that it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of how much there is to find still in the Greeks and Romans. How much this stuff will change our understanding of the Greeks and Romans is hard to say. That's probably the ultimate in terms of things like knowing how they built ships and you know what, what they were trading exactly. And that'd be wonderful to find a galley that was preserved perfectly. You know, people who do maritime archaeology would lose their minds. But I think there is just so much, not just places like Egypt or Pompeii or Herculaneum, but all over there of the former Roman world that is still underground or unrealized. It's just a matter of it being excavated the right way and you know, given to scholars who understand how, what, to, what to do with it. Funding the perpetual problem of science. <laughs> exactly. Is it a similar problem within history? In other words, do, do scholars have to fight for it? Oh, yeah. Like the scientists do. Well, it's even worse in that classicists you know, are fighting for their, their, their existence as a discipline, really, at this point. In many universities, departments of Greek and Latin are being axed or merged with other language departments. And so you're left with you know one or two stray scholars who are tacked into a larger department who do everything from Greek myth to Roman history. And as those depart- as those jobs fade, so do opportunities for rising scholars. So you have less and you have fewer and fewer professionals, despite the demand for those professionals, in an academic setting. And so there's a lot of anxiety in my field about the future because there's just fewer and fewer jobs for people to uh, research from. I myself left for that reason because I you could not find a good tenure track job in the classics anymore, or at least I couldn't. You know, you're forced into things like lectureships, you know, these one-year positions where you're, you know, paid a quarter of what a prof makes and do all the same work. Hopefully, I don't know if that'll change anytime soon. The humanities are always kind of get the shaft in terms of funding. Hopefully, there's more appreciation for things like we talked about before, kind of the eternal, the eternal validity of certain classical texts, which keep us aware of why it's important to have highly qualified scholars and universities exploring this stuff. But I'm not not real optimistic about that, to be honest. Yeah, it seems sad. And I find it sad because it, the ancient literature is interesting. I mean, it is – you can go read a book, a novel, written several of them. But it is a completely different thing to go back and read an ancient text describing life back then, especially. And it's it's just a different experience. And I, I – I, it sort of makes me sad that people are losing that and and not digging back and reading these. That's why I was wondering about simplification of them and modernization of the stories so that we can preserve them in some way in the public mind. And maybe that'll help funding. You know, if, if history is history needs to be history and it also needs we need to be careful with some of the things that claim to be history. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, sadly, yes. The, such as the history channel in, oh, its, right. in its current in its uh, current form. <laughs> the decline and fall. The decline and fall. And it's it's sort of <laughs> one thing that bothers me is it really badly is that those sorts of things, the ancient knowledge, lost ancient knowledge and ancient aliens and things like that, one thing that bothers me is it robs the ancient people of their accomplishment. The really amazing thing that they did as humans sort of gets watered down by having some sort of laser involved or something like that. (laughs) When in fact, you can go look at these stones and see tool marks, copper tool marks in the pyramids. And then you can go to things that are unknown that nobody ever talks about. For example, the baths of Diocletian in Rome. I don't know if you've been to those, but there are gigantic Egyptian monolithic columns, many, many, many times greater than any stones in the pyramids. And the Romans managed to take them from Egypt across the Mediterranean to Rome and erect them and outdo Egypt, essentially, with these monolithic columns. 
And nobody ever talks about it because the Romans, we knew how they did it, <laughs> essentially. Exactly right. There's, there's no mystique. There's no mystique. And even though it, it's a much greater proposition, it, it gets forgotten. Also, which what also gets forgotten is that our modern society so dramatically outdoes anything else ever to have existed on this planet as far as being able to construct stuff that it's not even funny and we don't need aliens to accomplish it and neither did ancient people and i i, I worry about that that pseudo history sort of is supplanting actual history in in public education at least on television and youtube for that matter in some cases Oh yeah, no, it uh, it worries me too. As as a YouTuber, first of all, of course, but uh, as someone who wants to see history understood and appreciate, like you said, these these incredible accomplishments should be acknowledged. And I, I think that there's this, I don't know, this almost desperate need for for mystery. Uh, that there's kind of this. I think that in a, in our modern world, so much is understood or seems to be understood. The world is fully explored. We have reached into space with our satellites. We have plumbed the depths. Whatever else. And so people are, are looking in the wrong places, I think, um, for mystery. And the, the things like aliens, these pseudo-historians, seem to offer kind of an easy fix for that sort of yearning. When, when really, if you look to, to scratch the surface of any ancient civilization, there's so much more wonder and fascination there than in any you know, half-baked story about UFOs showing up and beaming up the pyramids or whatever. Like, like, like the Romans themselves, for example, you know, these incredible columns you mentioned it was almost an industrial operation. They, they carved, you know, 50-ton, 100-ton columns in the eastern desert of Egypt, used sleds to bring them across the desert to the Nile, up the Nile, across the Mediterranean, and then erected these things. Actually, some erected obelisks from Egypt. The, the biggest one was 450 tons and, you know, brought that across, you know, all the way to Rome on rollers into the, into the city and used these pretty much turnstiles to raise it and left such detailed descriptions of it that we, they were able to replicate it in the Renaissance when they moved to the Vatican Obelisk, for example. And so, right, you know, I think that even doing you know, a good special on that sort of thing is so much more interesting and fascinating and real than you know, this kind of baseless speculation about, well, what if the pyramids were built by aliens? Again, you know, it's just, I think, besides desperation for, you know, a desperate need for ratings on their part, because they're, of course, fighting, you know, streaming platforms, whatever else, and this stuff gets views. It is this kind of the societal desire for something that's unexplored and not quite understood, but that can be satisfied in so much a, so much a better way, I think, by really looking deeply into these cultures and saying, here's how they did it and here's why, you know, that that's fascinating, interesting, you know, whatever. Yeah, and there's – and as a history YouTuber, you know this. There is never an end to videos you can make because there's so many ins and outs and even just World War II channels are never going to run out of material just because there's so much. And if you take it broader, and you recently did one, speaking of mystery, that fascinated me, or at least I recently watched it, I don't remember how old it was, was whatever happened to Alexander the Great's body. And what happened to that body when, you know, <laughs> Roman emperors breaking off noses accidentally, <laughs> kissing the... <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It had, it had a rough yeah, go of it. No rest for Alexander. Well, that's that's <laughs> real. As <laughs> far as we know, that happened. And that's just so much better than something that probably didn't happen. Right. Like some sort of magical way of building a pyramid. It's much more impressive when you actually look at the architecture and say, wow, now they didn't really leave us that many records regarding that. Although there are some uh, hieratic scrawlings, I think, from work, workmen and things like that to be found in there. But 
other than that, we don't really know exactly what they did, but Chanstar was probably very similar to what the Romans did, wouldn't you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, it's simple machines. You know, just a, a lot of muscle power, <laughs> you know, more than a few oxen or horses and yeah, things like levers, basic pulley operated cranes and uh, a lot of straining workmen. It, yeah, I mean, it really is incredible how much you can accomplish with simple machines and a lot of cheap labor. You know, things like, like the column of Trajan, for example. So in the, in the, or things like... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, continue on. I've actually seen the column of Trajan. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, the, the, the column of Trajan, you know, where, you know, we have, I think it's, you know, it's 12 gargantuan marble drums stacked on top of each other. And the top one is more than 100 feet from the ground. And that column, that chunk weighs more than 50 tons. And that was raised just straight up by simple wooden cranes operated by people. It was probably like a couple guys, like in a hamster style treadwheel. And that, that never fell down. No, no, it never did. It's still there now. And, you know, it, it shifted a little bit because they, they've put these metal dowel pins between the big drums and they were removed in the Middle Ages. They were chiseled out. And so after, after that happened, earthquakes have shifted the drums a bit. It was not quite as straight as it used to be. But uh, yeah, it's still standing strong. Yeah, as I recall, they didn't they during the Middle Ages knock down Trajan's statue and replace it with I think I think Saint Paul or something like that. So they <laughs> they sort of adapted this column. Yeah, yeah, anything that was bronze, they, they yeah, right, yeah. And anything that was bronze that they that they that they that they didn't think was Christian because there was that one Marcus Aurelius statue that has survived, but they thought it was Constantine, I think, mm-hmm. which Constantine is a. Orthodox and Catholic saint, technically, along with his mother, as I recall. So the other thing is that the accomplishments of the ancient world. Now we've ta- we've covered literature, we've covered architecture, but one area of architecture that you do a lot of work in that I, I find fascinating: surviving Roman buildings. And I have one question for you: mm-hmm. Are there any Greek buildings that aren't in ruin that have been adapted and survived to this time? In other words, what is the oldest surviving building that still has a roof on it. Well, there are actually a number of Greek buildings that are still in use today. And pretty much all of them are temples that became churches, uh, both because becoming a church is the default way to survive for you know, 2,000 years. It's used continuously. And because their temples are the most monumental things the Greeks built. The most famous example is in Syracuse in Sicily, where the town cathedral has been in succession, a Greek temple, a church, a mosque, and then a church again. It's been used continuously as a place of worship for 25 centuries. And you go inside this cathedral and you see the columns of the Greek temple on both sides of you. They've been walled in to form the nave of the church. And it really is incredible to see this place has been used for the same purpose for all that time. That's interesting. And things like, uh, I know, um, the Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople or, or Istanbul is now a mosque again as of recently, and obviously it was a church originally built by Justinian. And here, 1500 years later, it is still a house of worship. So what is it about these buildings that tend to keep them as sacred places, you think? I mean, is it just a sort of vibe that people want to keep? Well, yeah, I mean, part of it's just convenience. You have this big, solid building you can reuse for the same thing. There's also a sort of inertia to use. That something has been considered sacred by a community for a long time it will continue to be considered sacred often, even if it's a different religion. Initially, the Christians were reluctant to use temples because they thought they were places of demons, that uh, they were haunted. But they came around if it was a convenient temple. So like the Parthenon became a church for the same reason. It was a big, beautiful, well-located building that could be reused. And so it's kind of this combination of pragmatism and a sense that it should be used as a place of worship. 
And in the case of churches becoming mosques, there is this sort of almost imperialistic edge to it in Constantinople anyway, where something that was a great church should be a good mosque. It's the service of the same God. It's a natural one-to-one. So again, the two things, it's, it's there and it feels like it should be used as a place of worship. Now, regarding the Parthenon, it also served, <laughs> which is what put it into ruins, served as, I believe, an armory or a uh, where, where you <laughs> yes. Ottomans were storing powder or something like that, and the invading Venetians uh, accidentally blew it up. Now, I've been noticing that since that was so recent, that was the 17th century, since that was so recent, they seem to be reassembling it, and I seem to be seeing new stone <laughs> being put into the Parthenon. Is that controversial, reconstructing that particular iconic ruin? Anytime you try to rebuild a ruin, there's a sense that it's it's almost necessary to an extent with most buildings. Otherwise, it's just a heap of stones. Like the Arch of Titus in the Roman Forum, for example, it looks like it's more or less complete, but it's really a totally rebuilt structure that used the original stones and was put together in the 19th century in a more or less Roman shape. And there, they used different kinds of stone to mark the re- reconstructed portions to make it clear what was rebuilt and what was not. In the case of the Parthenon, that whole building really is the center of so many controversies because it's become the, the symbol of the Greek nation in so many ways. And so, this like, what, 40-year reconstruction project they're in the middle of right now, there's a sense that it should be rebuilt, at least to a certain degree, but it's also iconic as a ruin. So, they can't make it a new functioning building again. They have to make it kind of a, I guess, a better ruin, a more stable ruin, a more substantial, impressive ruin. There's sort of a sense where it has to be a certain level of decayed, but you know, so far, no further. And so it, there's this odd, I don't know, push and pull with that building in particular, where it, it's become a ruin, but you know, it's a ruin that harkens back to this era of greatness that a really kind of a disheveled ruin can't quite represent. It comes this whole, whole debate about what a ruin is and should be in terms of you know nationalism and national symbolism. And this can be applied to things like Notre Dame, where if it becomes a ruin, if you rebuild it fast enough, then you can bring it back. But if you were to leave it, it becomes it takes on a life of its own and remains a ruin. And England is covered with these ruined monasteries that were burned 500 years ago that you would never rebuild, even though some of them are in good enough shape to do so even though they're in the same boat, the same architecture as Notre Dame. So the moral of the story is rebuild it quickly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good luck, right? Yeah, it's interesting how the ruins have a different sort of value kind of assigned to them by communities, tourist boards, you name it, than a functioning building, even if it is essentially the same building, just sands rafters. Yeah, I don't know if it's just kind of a romanticism about that or that it assumes a certain kind of evocative appeal to a ruin. Yeah, but when something's rebuilt, it is a different, uh, different sort of structure. So if you know you took the Parthenon, put a new roof on it, new tiles, used uh, the latest laser cutters to recreate all the sculpture, it would be a very impressive building. But you know, would it feel like the same building? Yeah, it's hard to say. Do you think we still generate buildings like that? Do you think that in four hundred years we will leave ruins, or do you think that our something's changed and that we just don't? really make buildings worth <laughs> worth <laughs> preserving that way. The, 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 uh, the Walmart is not going to be a historic ruin. <laughs> do you, yeah, right. do you think something's changed? And if so, what? I mean, yes, I think that two things have changed. Both it's become, we've advanced technologically to the point where we can make vast buildings out of very insubstantial materials, you know, things like prefab roofs, you know, things like skyscrapers with their curtain walls of glass. So we can make things that aren't substantial, or at least are not substantial in terms of materials, that are 
very large, very stable, serve their purpose for a century anyway. So part of it's just that we can do it, and it's cheaper to do it, so we do it. There's also a sense that I think we don't build monumental buildings in the sense that it was fashionable to do even a century ago. Banks with the big Corinthian columns out front, we don't do that anymore. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. Part of it just expense. You don't have to. That's not, not the same symbol it used to be. Part of it is you can make that same statement with much cheap, much more cheaply with other materials. But I think there's also a not the sort of demand there used to be for a big solid masonry structure to be an impressive thing. Well, part because our, our language architecturally has shifted so much in the wake of the Second World War, we use glass and metal. We used to use stone. But there's just different expectations, I think, about what a monument, what a civic building should be. And those don't usually involve marble anymore, both reasons of expense and because people think, I don't know, it's outmoded. It's uh, <laughs> no longer a thing to do. Yeah, uh, obsolete, I guess you could say, obsolete building material, except uh, right, yeah. if, unless you're redoing your kitchen or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, countertops. Countertops, yeah. So in building, do you think that would ever change? Or do you think in the future, it's just going to be more of the same plastic and that we we have ended, you could say, the era of permanent architecture. And that worries me, actually. Well, it'd be a shame. I think there's always kind of, there's there's movements and there's reactions in architecture like anything else. So, you know, after the Second World War, you know, there's the famous international style, which is kind of our, our default American downtown. I mean, I'm from Chicago, so this is all you see, you know, kind of these big buildings that are made seemingly of glass on a steel frame, a steel and concrete frame, which is hidden, more or less, you know, behind that glass curtain. And, you know, that's a slick corporate statement. And so it's been made umpteen times. But because it's so ubiquitous, there's a reaction to it. As you see, cer- certain companies, you know, being with kind of the postmodern style of the late 80s, hearkening back to traditional architecture in all kinds of ways. And often it's kind of a cartoony, goofy sort of way that they do it. You know, they kind of just like stick a column in the middle of a glass curtain or something. But I think there's always there's so much cultural memory linked to the idea of the classical style, the style of columns and of moldings and of, you know, big substantial masonry structures. And, and that memory is not going to go away. How it's interpreted in the future, I, I have no idea. Maybe super cheap in the future to build things of masonry again, and you can do it without worrying about transport costs and hiring non-existent masons. But I think there always will be, from a combination of just stylistic, this whip song of style reaction, style reaction, and this enduring influence of the classical style, it'll never be co- go away totally, but it'll be quoted and reused, reinterpreted, however you, ne- you care to mention it moving forward. Now, do you think that there, this is sort of the last topic, do you think that there's neglected areas of history and archaeology that just aren't getting the attention that they really need? And I will, I will cite an example. Mm-hmm. I will, I'm from originally right next door in St. Louis. And right across the river in Illinois is Cahokia Mounds, a gigantic Native American city consisting, for lack of a better term, earthen pyramids. Mm-hmm. And it's just absolutely amazing, as, as, as astonishing as anything in Central America, if you if you appreciate what it is. But there are almost, almost no archaeological work seems to go on there. It's sporadic, and sometimes the state's having funding problems, the site closes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's sort of the norm, that there is entire swaths of archaeology and human history that really aren't being looked at as much as they should? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of, of course, you know, as a classicist, that, that's, that to me is kind of the, the thing I focus on in terms of what, what is, how to use history, what is history. But, you know, there's vast sections of history, you know, in this country, you know, around the world that are neglected. And certain times, often like curriculums, say, like a junior high, the Western Civ, 
we'll, we'll try to correct that by giving you a one-page overview of something, you know, of you know, a thousand years of history. But when it comes down to it, we've kind of chosen as a culture to privilege certain eras and certain places, fairly or unfairly. And that kind of creates our, our narrative of what history is. Everything that's outside of that arc just falls by the wayside. And even within the classics, there's so much. People, you know, they ask the guy on the street to name, you know, five Romans. We might get Caesar and Marcus Aurelius, might throw Cleopatra in there, not really Roman, but close enough. And then it kind of falls off. You know, we have a, a very, speaking in terms of, na- ma- of mass culture, a very narrow, narrow view of what Greece and Rome were, defined really by Hollywood and video games in terms of kind of the mass culture. But even education, we kind of have privileged a few little periods that probably because we have more sources from that era, but probably because we kind of decided from inertia or whatever else that it's more important. So any history was kind of this almost arbitrary choice about what is important, what is relevant, what is not. And when you look closely at that, it becomes kind of distressing to see how much you're omitting. So there's always so much room, but whether on YouTube or in academic history, for revisionism, for looking at these famous things from less familiar angles, because there's so much more ground to cover, even in a very heavily researched topic like the classics. So yes, I guess the short answer is very much so, that there, there's so much of history that we have, we culturally and me individually, uh, is have just not touched, and that we certainly could if we found the right lens with which to do it. Now, my final topic to briefly touch on is a video that I watched that absolutely thrilled me on your channel. And to do this, I'll, I'll name a Roman, Brutus. And you are holding an aureus, an Eidmar aureus, which uh-huh. this this coin has two daggers on it in commemoration oh, yeah. of the assassination of Julius Caesar. I don't, I know of no coin like this. And in gold, as this one was, with a hole in it, as 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 it were, <laughs> what was it like holding that? Knowing knowing the significance of that coin, holding that, what what did that feel like for you? Oh, that that, that was surreal. I mean, for for someone who collects Roman coins on a very small scale, as I do. That, that's the holy grail. And to have this thing, you know, this is the, you know, the Honus Wagner baseball card. This is, you know, Superman number one. You know, this is, you know, the thing that any collector is aware of. And, you know, I, I went to this auction house in London. I happened to be there for an, a different reason. And to my complete astonishment, they allowed me to, to stay in a room alone with this thing pretty much, you know, for an hour making this video. This and three other, four other coins that were very, very rare and valuable. And, you know, taking it in your hand, we talked before about kind of the tangibility of money. And gold, of course, has that weight to it. Weight is substantial. It's, it's the size of a nickel, the coin. It's not a very large coin. But it feels much, so much more substantial than a nickel because it's gold, it's heavier, and it has that, that highly textured surface. And seeing that coin, you know, with, with the two daggers in the back and Bruce's portrait on the front, and knowing that it was probably handed out by Brutus himself to one of his commanders, and you're touching what Brutus himself touched, quite possibly. That really is just... Uh, you're reaching through history and kind of shaking the hand of a famous Roman. And that, that was just a, a, a very cool feeling. And it's not new to us. It's the very first known coin collector who collected Greek coins was Julius Caesar. And he himself would have, would have known this, this feeling of holding that kind of history in your hands. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's wonderful. All right, Doctor, we are out of time. Thanks for joining us. Everybody should check out Dr. Garrett Ryan's channel on YouTube, Told in Stone, and you will find an endless amount of very interesting historical videos that I highly recommend. Oh, well, thanks so much.